together and organize. Today's meeting is a truly global gathering. We're delighted to have registrations from 49 countries and the statement has now been translated into 16 languages so far. So I'm Jenny Clegg um, and I'm the author of a book entitled China's Global Strategy Towards a Multipolar World. I'm also active in the peace and anti-war movement in Britain and I will be chairing the proceedings. Uh, before I go on, I'd like to bring in the convener of the event, Carlos Martinez, to explain how this meeting came about. Carlos. Thank you very much, Jenny, and thank you, everyone. Um, thank you for attending today's event. Thank you to the panelists. Thank you to the audience. My name is Carlos Martinez. I'm a writer and activist based in London, and I'm one of the event organizers. And I just wanted to take a couple of minutes to introduce the meeting and explain how it came about and, and why it's taking place. So the idea to have an event around the new Cold War came from informal discussions I was having with a few contacts. And I'll, I'll mention those people now since they've they're the ones who've done the hard work of organizing the meeting. That's uh, Ajit Singh, Danny Haifong, Chiao Collective, Fiona Edwards, and John Ross. And we decided to put together a small organizing group with a view to planning an event and launching a campaign because the issue of the new Cold War is becoming seemingly more important by the day, particularly this year. The US and its allies have been seriously escalating their anti-China rhetoric around the pandemic around trade issues, around Hong Kong, around Xinjiang. And along with the rhetoric comes sanctions, diplomatic pressure, and a ramped up military threat. We seem to have reached a situation in which the sort of Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld project for a new American century has moved from, if you like, the neoconservative fringes to taking center stage. It's become a consensus position. This is a unilateralist strategy that aims to cement US dominance and ultimately to prevent the emergence of a more democratic, a more equal, a more multipolar world. And for those people around the world, which I think is the large majority that desire peace, that desire progress, that desire cooperation to tackle the major problems faced by humanity, this new, new Cold War constitutes a very dangerous and a very worrying situation. And that's why we chose to organize on an international basis, because this is an issue that affects all of humanity and has implications for the, for the future of the planet. It was particularly important for us to incorporate Chinese progressive opinion, which unfortunately is something that's rarely heard in the West, and to help build a conversation with voices from around the world, including the US peace movement, uh, the British peace movement, the Latin American left and elsewhere. And I'm really glad that we've been able to put together such an international platform with speakers from China, the US, Britain, India, Venezuela, Russia, and Canada. This issue isn't gonna go away anytime soon. There's a lot of work to do. So please, I hope that everyone will keep in touch and let's try to consolidate our forces globally against the insanity of a new Cold War. And with that introduction, I will hand you back to Jenny Clegg. Thanks very much, Carlos. Um, before I start introducing the panel speakers, I'll just have a few words of introduction myself. Um, thinking about the current developments, I recall an article that was published in 2003 by an anti-war journalist in the leading newspaper, which had the headline, Iraq, Iran, then China next, question mark. It seems that the moment of China next has now arrived. Just as the COVID virus began to spread, making so starkly clear the urgency for governments to cooperate against the pandemic, US-China relations deteriorated sharply. 
with Trump's racialized rhetoric casting China as the villain, what had started as differences over trade became elevated into the realm of ideology. Now differences over trade can be negotiated over and resolved, but once China is called a liar, once China is racially abused, what is there to talk about? Reinforced by an incessant flow of negative media coverage, the China threat is portrayed now in existential terms as a threat to the very values of world civilization embodied by the West. It is now that we start to enter the terrain of a new Cold War. This is no mere war of words. There's been a serious military buildup by the US to contain China. And this has been ramped up even further as the deadly virus was devastating the US population with full force, diverting yet more funds from health into the military. An astonishingly callous disregard for human life, compounding Trump's appalling misgovernment of the COVID crisis in a bid precisely to claim the US as the best power in the world to govern. Events, particularly over the last couple of weeks, have become increasingly worrisome, and it looks as, in many ways as if a new Cold War may be starting to solidify. The US has passed new acts to cover Xinjiang and Hong Kong, existing alongside Tibet and ta uh, Taiwan acts, uh, gestures that threaten Chinese sovereignty and some kind of imitation of the calls by imperialist powers over a century ago to dismember China. On July the 13th, Mike Pompeo made a statement strengthening US policy in the South China Sea, seemingly to lay out the legal foundations of war with China. And now we have the further provocation of the illegal closure of the Chinese consulate in Houston. Where will this stop? Trump has also intensified the drive to force other countries to choose sides, using Huawei as the lever. 5G is now apparently to divide the world between freedom and democracy on the one hand and China's so-called bullying and co coercion on the other. And of course, I can't resist mentioning here how Mike Pompeo was in the UK last week calling for US-UK unity against China's bullying, having, of course, just bullied the US government into stripping Huawei from its networks. World-threatening crises are converging. Pandemic, yet another economic recession, and looming ever closer the catastrophe of climate change. People are waking up to the fact now that the US-China relationship is the most important relationship now sh shaping the world. The increasing aggression against China poses the most serious threat to world peace, and as such, it is a massive obstacle in the way of humanity successfully dealing with these crucial common issues that we're facing. So why have US-China relations taken such a nosedive? How might the new Cold War develop in the coming months unfolding into the future? And above all, what is to be done? How can we, the people, shape the future? Um, we have before us, as Carlos said, uh, a panel of internationally renowned uh, speakers uh, from across the world, uh, a multipolarity, you might say, of scholars and academics, political analysts and activists, and in most cases, all of these, um, who will bring a great wealth, of diverse, wealth and diversity of knowledge and experience to bear to get to grips with the unprecedented challenges before us. The meeting is scheduled to finish by 4.30 p.m., if not before British summer time, a total of two and a half hours. So to start us off, uh, we have Professor John Ross, 
uh, who we must all thank for getting this initiative off the ground. John is an economist, a senior fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University in China. He's internationally known for seminal work on economic reforms in the former Soviet Union and China, and he blogs on learning from China and his pieces on the Chinese economy uh, are a must read and are written not only for economists, but are accessible to non-economists as well. Uh, so John, please start us off. John, you're muted. I'm not hearing anything. John, you're still muted. Right. I am still muted. Not now. We can hear you now. Right, fine, sorry, right. Okay. Firstly, Jenny slightly elevated me. I'm um, a currently um, senior fellow, not professor. Right, okay. I want to go very quickly through what was the type of discussion which led up to the need to take such a statement. It's the crucial thing is, right, okay. I want to be clear, what, what is the nature of this statement? It's an anti-Cold War statement. It's not a pro-China statement. It's um, the new Cold War is a threat to human humanity. I know here some signatories support China's policies and methods of development. Other signatories may oppose parts of China's development or even all of it. Um, I don't know the views of all the speakers and signatories. But what unites them is that they all agree a new Cold War will be against the interests of humanity. It will take humanity backwards. I would like to give examples by looking at five of the urgent issues which face the whole of humanity. In this, I believe particularly important is the dialogue of speakers from the US and China, because as Carlos said, there's not nearly enough dialogue which takes place on, on that basis. Right? right. What is a new Cold War? It's not only about the US and China, it's an attempt by the present US administration to impose its policies on the world and to force other countries to follow these. What would be the consequences of success in this for the EU administration? What would they be consequences for the whole of humanity? First, let's take with the COVID-19. The pandemic is completely out of control in the United States and rising internationally. As you can see on the graph on the right, when the US applied some lockdown measures as followed by other countries, there was a decline in the number of cases. These are now rising vertiginously. Look at also at the situation in Brazil, the country which follows the same policies. This would be a disaster for humanity. Literally millions of people would die if this policy were imposed. Second, the threat of war. The US in the last decades has launched major wars, most openly Iraq and Libya. But these wars brought disaster not only for these countries, but to entire regions. Destabilization of the Middle East and parts of Africa, rise of terrorist organizations operating internationally. The US administration has always taken dangerous steps, such as withdrawal from the INF and imposed unilateral sanctions. Of course, the threat of war with China itself would be an unimaginable catastrophe. 
climate change. The US is the only country to formally withdraw from the Paris Climate Change Accords, but don't have any illusions. It's putting on huge pressure uh, onto countries such as Brazil and Saudi Arabia, which remain formally signatories in order to undermine the Paris Accords. This poses a catastrophe, the threat of a catastrophe for the planet and humanity. The issue of racism. Most of the world has been inspired, of course, by the huge protests in the United States since the racist killing of George Floyd and by the Black Lives Matter movement. But this is directly related to this threat of a new Cold War, because what has happened is that the US people have recognized it by these actions clearly that their main problems were made in the United States, not in other countries. What the US administration wants to do is to try to persuade people in all countries, including, for example, my own, that the problems are not made by people in their country, they're made by some other country. I remember it still because I'm old enough to be involved at the time in the movement against the Vietnam War, Muhammad Ali's inspiring words, I ain't got no quarrel with, with them Viet Cong. They never lynched you, never called you N-words, never put dogs on you, never shot your leaders. Anti-Muslim rhetoric and actions are also a very serious threat. And we see in several countries the clear evidence that Chinese people would be added to the list of black people and Muslims in the list of racist targets. In short, a new Cold War would see a huge wave of international racism. Economic development and poverty reduction. Overcoming world poverty remains the decisive issue for humanity. We should never forget that 84% of the world's population lives in developing countries. This is literally a life or death question. The life expectancy in a low income economy is 17 years less than in the high income economy. China's raised over 860 million people out of World Bank to find poverty. Over 70% of all those lifted out of poverty in the world. But what is the US attempting to do now? I put down a graph, which is the projection for the share of contributions to the world growth by the IMF in the next two years. China, 51%, India, 19%. The US is 3.3%. So what the US Cold War is attempting to do is to reorientate all countries in the world away from the most rapidly growing parts of the world economy and towards its relatively stagnant own economy. This would have very serious consequences for increases in world poverty and um, lack stop, lack, stop in economic development. So... To summarize, the threat of the new Cold War is not just about the United States and China. It is about, although of course they are the main actors in this, it's a threat to the whole of the humanity. And what is the alternative to do it? Which, which is to jointly work together to fight the pandemic, to oppose war, to fight climate change, to oppose every form of racism, to work together for peaceful economic development. Therefore, I believe that for the interest of humanity, it should be a simple, slogan, no Cold War. And there has to be real international work around that. Thank you very much for listening. Jenny, you're muted. Thanks so much for that, John. Uh, very clear and comprehensive rationale behind uh, the statement and very informative too. So thanks a lot there. Um, our next speaker is uh, from an American peace organization, 
that since the Iraq war has gained much respect, not only within the United States, but also across the world. Code Pink is a women-led grassroots organization working to end US wars and militarism and to support peace and human uh, rights initiatives. I'm delighted to introduce Medea Benjamin. Medea. Thank you so much for organizing this important meeting and I look forward to having more of these. Um, when it comes to China, I think there's certainly lots of uh, great and important discussions we could and should have about problems in the Chinese society, lack of free speech, human rights issues, uh, labor issues. Uh, but when I hear it coming from leaders in the US, whether they're from the Democratic or Republican side, uh, it makes me quite angry because I know that they're doing it uh, for ulterior motives. Uh, when you hear US leaders decry the lack of uh, free speech in China at a time when we have uh, thugs uh, from the military and the police department on our streets uh, tear gassing and uh, shooting rubber bullets at peaceful demonstrators, it's hard to take them seriously. Um, when you hear uh, the decrying of the treatment of the Uyghurs in China, it's hard to take it seriously from people in both parties who have been supporting uh, the two decade now uh, war on Muslims throughout the world. Uh, US involved in bombing seven Muslim countries and torturing Muslims at Abu Ghraib and throwing in them into prisons in Guantanamo uh, at contributing to starving Muslim children in Yemen uh, by supplying the Saudis with the bombs, uh, banning Muslims from entering the United States, laying the groundwork for uh, a, an attack on uh, Muslims uh, th throughout the US and now uh, turning that into an attack on Asians, particularly Chinese, Chinese students, uh, Chinese researchers, Chinese scientists, closing down Confucian centers at various universities and having now literally thousands of FBI investigations against Chinese that harken back to the uh, witch hunts against the Japanese in World War II. Uh, so these uh, real discussions about uh, shortcomings in Chinese societies are not gonna come from leaders in the US. What is most ludicrous is to hear those US leaders talking about a new Chinese aggression uh, when the US has over 800 military bases around the world, including surrounding China, uh, when the US has now in the South Chinese seas two chi giant aircraft carriers, uh, six nuclear submarines. And let's remember that uh, when it comes to nuclear weapons, the US has 6,000 compared to China uh, with 300 and the US military exercise that are conducted every two years uh, in the called the Rim of the Pacific off the waters of Hawaii, uh, where the last time it involved over 20,000 US military. Uh, my worry is that uh, what we have been hearing about China will only be escalated because of the coronavirus and because the economic problems that are going to result from that uh, where China is going to be a lot quicker than the United States at recovering from those problems and will continue its initiative uh, like the Belt and Road Initiative that include over 100 countries uh, and the US is going to try to stop that. Um, it's not just an issue about uh, economic competition, uh, but we know that the US military industrial complex is always looking for uh, a, an enemy 
And um, there has been a call now for years to pivot to Asia, meaning stop the U.S. focus on the Middle East, try to get the U.S. out of those 20-year wars. Uh, there's even calls now to uh, withdraw military from some places in, inside of Europe, uh, reposition them, uh, but to focus on Asia. And we see this now in the U.S. military budget that is just being voted on right now. Uh, there was a defeat in an effort to cut down the U.S. military budget by 10 percent. And um, uh, the people who uh, voted against it were the vast majority of both of certainly Republicans, but also Democrats. Uh, and uh, the call to um, pass this new $740 billion budget in the United States, um, saying we needed that to counter adversaries like China. Uh, there was a U.S. senator, not a, a, not a particularly hawkish one, uh, Mitt Romney, who has said that uh, we have to have this massive U.S. military budget uh, to counter China's new aggression. Uh, when we know that China's military budget of $178 billion uh, now compared to the $740 billion in the United States um, is ridiculous. He also said, imagine the consequences when a nation that does not believe in human rights with only one party, uh, when they have the overwhelming military force in the world, and that's where we are headed. And so the new mil U.S. military budget includes billions of dollars more for a, quote, defensive ring around Guam, for increased stockpiles of long-range weapons around the Pacific, uh, and for an extra $20 billion to be spent uh, in the coming years on new radar warning systems and cruise missile, missiles, uh, greater military exercises in the region, deployment of additional forces, and new intelligence sharing uh, centers with our allies in the Pacific. And so I want to uh, echo what John Ross has just said about uh, the need for uh, education um, in our countries. I'm very upset because in the United States, we see two thirds of Americans have an unfavorable view of China. That's up 20% since Trump came to power. Um, while we are calling for a pivot to peace, not a pivot to Asia, uh, we have to recognize that massive education needs to be done in our own countries to explain that China is not our enemy, that the Chinese people are not our enemy, and that we do need to work together more than ever to solve the problem of coronavirus, to find new treatments, to find new vaccines, uh, to deal with the crisis of the environment, to deal with the crisis in the Korean Peninsula that can only be solved with the help of China. So I look forward to more discussions like these and more ways that we can work together internationally to say to the people of the world, China is not our enemy. The Chinese people are not our enemy. We call for cooperation and peace with our Chinese brothers and sisters. Thank you. Thanks very much, Medea, um, for those very thoughtful uh, comments and that information about the US uh, military buildup. Um, our uh, next speaker is uh, one of two uh, American Black Peace activists. Uh, obviously, as people have mentioned, the Black Lives Matter has erupted in the midst of the COVID crisis, with demonstrations across America becoming probably the largest mass movement in US history. 
just as the rise of the developing world of which China is a part has put great pressure on the structural inequalities of the US-led world system, so Black Lives Matter has exposed the deep-rooted structural inequalities of racism <laughs> on which the US itself has been built, just as it is fighting to justify its monopoly of world leadership. So here we have Margaret Kimberley, who's an editor and senior columnist with Black Agenda Report, which provides news and commentary and analysis from the Black left. She's also an activist for peace and justice issues and a member of the War Resisters League Speakers Bureau. Margaret. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's, it's, morning, uh, it's morning here in New York at any rate. Greetings to you all. Uh, I want to uh, thank this group for inviting me to participate in this very important meeting. Uh, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when Nixon went to China when I was a kid. It was said at the time that only a cold warrior could have pulled it off. Now, nearly 50 years later, the Cold War has been resurrected with a vengeance and China has been declared an enemy of this government and Americans are being whipped into a frenzy of hatred and suspicion against this nation. Now, whenever we see a reference to China in the corporate media, we always see the word communist party attached. This silly redundancy is war propaganda, along with every other smear and slur. We're told that one million Uyghurs are imprisoned when there is quite literally no proof of any such thing. The China is the country which first experienced the COVID-19 virus, was the first to vanquish it, and has a low death rate of less than 5,000 people to prove it. We depend here in America on China to produce masks and other protective equipment, but China is declared the villain. A country that within one month of realizing there was a new communicable disease gave the world the keys to conquering it. Instead, the country which fails where China succeeds in providing for the needs of its people and their health is an international pariah, with most of the world barring Americans from travel and turning us into a giant leper colony. Trump, who speaks of the Kung flu and the Wuhan virus, but it is China which conquered the disease that has killed 130,000 Americans and forced a quarantine which has caused economic devastation to millions of people here but Americans get nothing but war propaganda. Trump and Joe Biden outdo one another, bragging about who will be tougher on China. This week, we saw the US government violate international law again and close the Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas. But the US isn't alone. Its lackeys and vassals, commonly known as allies, follow the lead of the gangster state into spewing what can only be called war propaganda. Just to the north of here, Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talks behind Trump's back, but never steps out of line. When Washington ordered Canada to arrest Meng Wanzhou, the daughter of Huawei's founder, they did just that. The US accused Huawei of violating US sanctions by doing business with Iran. There's nothing in US or Canadian law which permitted her arrest, but like a good little puppet, Canada did as it was told. China retaliated and arrested two Canadians who remain under detention. But Trudeau doubles down and refuses to release her. 
Propaganda succeeds. It's kind of like a music that one hears over and over again. We remember it whether we intend to or not. And threats to prevent members of the Chinese Communist Party, some 100 million people, from entering the United States may seem laughable, but the foolishness is serious and meant to get public buy-in for dangerous acts. That is why millions of people believe there are millions of Uyghurs in Chinese prisons. The charge is false, completely made up, like tales of WMD in Iraq, babies taken from incubators in Kuwait, Libyan soldiers popping Viagra pills, and Russians paying bounties to kill US troops. But the damage is done with sheer repetition and media acting like government scribes. We can expect to see more incidents like the closing of the Houston consulate and the Chinese government will retaliate. It's frightening that otherwise sensible people can be turned into a mob, ready to believe what they're told and declare a country which has done them no harm as an enemy, but that's not accidental. The history isn't new. When the Chinese revolution occurred in the late 1940s, there were arguments in America about who lost China, as if China were the property of the US and not a sovereign state. But that is what results from white supremacy as it plays out in foreign policy. China's history with U Europe and the US is not a happy one. The Delano family, for example, yes, FDR's grandparents, made a fortune trading opium. The British stole Hong Kong, and now 20 years after they left are acting like the good little lapdogs that they are and joined in using Hong Kong to destabilize China. Canada and the UK aren't alone. Australia has joined in the effort too, and even raided the home of a New South Wales Parliament legislator who had done, <coughs> excuse me, who had done nothing except advocate for better relations between the two countries. I have referred to four of the Five Eyes nations, the UK and its settler colonial offshoots, the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And as the Imperial Project reaches a fever pitch, they all work ever more closely together. While US senators say the Chinese students should only be allowed to study Shakespeare and not science, yes, a senator really said that, and babble about communist party member, China forges, forges its own way and of course incurs the wrath of the US as it does. China and Iran have an agreement to give each other aid and oil. And that means that the US tan tantrums over sanctions will cause suffering in the short term. But the targets will be the ones that may prosper. But that of course is why the aggression will continue. I think it's extremely important that those of us who call ourselves members of the left know where we ought to stand. We must always be in opposition to the US NATO allied vassal state aggression against China and the rest of the world too. We cannot be confused. When Remember that when the US speaks of human rights, you are hearing from the country that has more of its population incarcerated, some 2 million people than any other country in the world. Military spending larger than that of the next 10 countries combined. It allows police to kill a thousand people every year. COVID-19 has killed thousands, impoverished more, and uh, its profit-making healthcare system is proof of a lack of human rights. We have to call out war propaganda whenever we see it and hear, us, hear it, and not allow ourselves to be drawn into bogus arguments. We cannot use the first person when thinking about government statements 
uh, regarding China or any other country. Our interests are not those of the rulers and we must never forget that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Margaret, for that powerful um, exposure of uh, war propaganda and also for drawing our attention to uh, the crucial role of the five eyes in all of this. Um, now, um, I want to uh, mention at this point that um, we are tweeting uh, and invite you to join um, uh, to spread the word. Um, it's hashtag no new cold war altogether, hashtag no new cold war. So uh, moving on, um, now for many people around the world, uh, China and the Chinese people are an unknown quantity, certainly in the West, where over the last century and a half, long years of indifference have been punctuated by flare-ups of mass hysteria over the so-called yellow peril. So above all in the world today, we need to hear the voices from China. Uh, we're going to have two speakers from China today. And the first uh, for me to introduce is Wang Wen, who's Executive Dean of the Chongyang Institute of <coughs> Financial Studies at Renmin University. Um, he's leader of a top-ranked think tank and consultant uh, for several government ministries in China uh, and has written extensively on topics concerning international affairs. Okay, thank you. Thank you, thank you for having me. Uh, as a Chinese scholar, I'm very uh, grateful for uh, so many international uh, friends to join uh, the No uh, New Cold War Initiative. This is a very, very important uh, event. Actually, uh, in the next three months before the US election, will be a high risk period for China-US relations. The Trump administration can do anything to win the election. So it is not ruled out that military conflicts against China will be launched by the Trump administration. The Trump's China policy now is quite crazy and has no bottom line. The Trump, Trump now is likely to announce a diplomatic break with China. One of Trump's election strategy is to constantly provoke China. If China strikes back, no one in the US will pay attention to Trump's feeling in the fight against the pandemic. Trump can also pretend to be a strong political man who dare to fight against China to get more votes. Now, China maintain patience, so Trump keeps stimulating until China and the US break off diplomatic relations and even a war. So if so, it will be a disaster to China-US relations as well as mankind and the world. So I think this is an open political conspiracy. The Trump administration is a source of the dis disaster. But fortunately, China was not irritated as the Soviet Union was in 1740, uh, 19, no, uh, 1947 by the Iron Curtain speech. China has no intention to respond to the US with a new Cold War. China State Council and Foreign Minister Wang Yi 
deliver that speech with a huge amount of information about the US and China relation on July 9th. Wang Yi stressed that China-US relations face the most civilian challenge since the establishment of diplomatic ties in uh, 1979. And he called on China-US ties to get back on track toward long-term sound and steady development. His proposal was very pragmatic with details. First, to activate and open all the channels of dialogue. Second, to review and agree on the lists of interactions. Third, to focus and cooperate on the COVID-19 response. So uh, contrary to the speech uh, respectively delivered by the uh, US Vice President Michael Pence and a separate of state Michael Pompeo, uh, one is speech, neither lie about the US, none attacked the country. It did not uh, convene any hard-line gesture to coerce the US. It was full of wisdom and thick uh, recommendations for the healthy development of China-US relations and the resolutions for problems. The US is pressing the, the accelerator to trash bilateral relations now, but China is putting the bricks on uh, with the hope of preventing China-US relations from continuing to the plummet. So obviously the Trump administration's strategy to shape China as an enemy will not succeed. Uh, for example, on July, on early July, my institute, Chongyang Institute for Financial Study, Lenmin, Lenmin University of China, completely uh, uh, questionnaire of 100 Chinese scholars. In that questionnaire, 62% of those pooled believe the US is waging a new Cold War against China. But 82% hold the view that a new Cold War resembling the US Soviet Union Cold War is unlikely. Besides, 90% believe China is well prepared to help handle a new Cold War offensive launched by the US. So uh, anyway, uh, in my opinion, uh, the coronavirus is still uh, raging on the peak of the pandemic. Uh, has not yet to come. The pessimistic estimate is that as many as 70 million people may die, if not united, humanity, including US, will likely enter a dark age. So therefore, I agree uh, uh, some friends right now said, Americans should know that China is not enemy the virus is, and all the international friends should know we don't need a new Cold War. Thank you. Thank you, Wang Wen. How necessary it is for us to hear uh, the views uh, from China. Uh, clearly Trump is capable of anything and it's vital that we know how China is proposing to respond.
Our next speaker is Vijay Prashad, Executive Director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Vijay is an Indian historian, journalist, commentator, and a Marxist intellectual. He's a very pro prolific author of 30 books and a key voice in progressive politics, commenting on the wider range of Asian affairs, which are so important as India emerges as a new geopolitical force amidst the new US-China Cold War scenario. Vijay. Thank you, Jenny. And thank you, Carlos, for inviting me. Um, I'm going to talk about the Indo-Pacific Command of the United States and the Quad countries, um, the threat not only to China, but the kind of corrosive politics around Asia and Eurasia. Since 2017, the United States government has released a few reports and fact sheets on its new Indo-Pacific strategy. It's impossible to analyze these texts and the speeches from US government officials because they are largely made of empty phrases. What does it mean to say that the Indo-Pacific strategy, for instance, is going to promote free, fair, and reciprocal trade? Each of these terms, free, fair, and reciprocal, would need elaboration. Their meaning should be defined. But over hundreds of pages, there is simply no explanation of what any of these phrases, such as this one, means. Buried in these meaningless words in the Indo-Pacific strategy is a much deeper, much darker agenda of the US government to use three large Asian states, Australia, India, and Japan, they form the Quad to isolate and roll back China. There is nothing else to it. The US government has made it very clear that what it finds most objectionable is China's Belt and Road Initiative which has signed on about 100 countries across the world. The roots of the Belt and Road Initiative, which began in 2013, was to pivot China's reliance upon the markets of the West to other countries and to use China's massive surpluses to build infrastructure in key parts of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. By 2027, Morgan Stanley estimates, despite the coronavirus recession, China will spend about $1.3 trillion on this ambitious construction project. Even Saudi Arabia, a close ally of the United States, has made the Belt and Road Initiative one of the cornerstones of its Saudi Vision 2030 plan. While China has invested $68 billion to build China-Pakistan economic corridor that links to the Arabian Sea at the Gwadar port, Saudi Arabia has agreed to invest $10 billion in the port itself. The scale of Chinese investment and the participation of a range of countries with different political identities and commitments is staggering. Put this beside the Indo-Pacific Business Forum in July 2018, which was hosted by the US government. This was held not in Asia, but quite tellingly in Washington, DC. At this forum, the United States bragged that it has spent $2.9 billion through the Department of State and the USAID. It has lined up hundreds of millions of dollars more through its US Millennium Challenge Corporation and the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. If you add up 
all this money that the US intends to spend for economic projects, it is a fraction of a percent of the Chinese investments. There is simply no appetite in Washington. And this is whether you consider the Trump administration, before that the Obama administration, and possibly a Biden administration. There is no appetite across the board of mainstream American politics with, in the current case, this America first attitude to funnel more money towards investments in the region currently being built by the Belt and Road Initiative. It appears as if the US investments will come with military claims. Nepal is currently in an internal debate over whether it should accept $500 million from a Millennium Challenge Corporation grant. This has to do with building electric power lines. Will this money that comes from the US government, will this money mean that the Nepali government would have to allow US troops into the country and allow the United States to build bases in Nepal? This would be objectionable to the Nepali Communist Party, which is currently the government in Kathmandu. The government is also coming to terms with the discovery of an enormous cache of high quality uranium in the Mustang region, which borders in Nepal and China. If the US money comes with the US military presence, this will create a serious flashpoint in the Himalayas. We've already seen India and Indian and Chinese troops clash in the Leh Ladakh area, the high mountains of the Himalayas. We've seen Indian and Chinese troops come to very near conflict in the northeast of India. If the, the United States puts pressure on Nepal, this will create further developments in a negative direction for Asia. Unable to outspend the Chinese, the US government is making a rhetorical argument that it has more respect for transparency, human rights, and democratic values than China which the US says practices repression at home and abroad. These quotes are from a US document called a free and open Indo-Pacific. Reading documents such as these requires fortitude. They are plainly rhetorical and nonsensical. It's hard to imagine the United States being transparent with its trade deals. It's hard to imagine the United States being free with countries when we know that it imposes pressure on countries in order to push its own agenda. In May 2018, the US military command was renamed the Indo-Pacific Command. This is a much more clear identification of US policy. The most recent Indo-Pacific Command document is called Regain the Advantage. It comes alongside new hypersonic cruise missiles. The United States, in other words, through its rhetoric, through building up military force and new military technologies, seeks to impose a war on Asia. It is interesting that in all the documents released by the US government and in all the speeches, there is no discussion of the strategy of the US government and its allies in how to contain China. What you have is rhetoric that skates into extremely belligerent territory. We say no war. No conventional war, but also no hybrid war. No war on China. We want peace in Eurasia, peace in the waters around Asia. Thank you very much.
Thank you, VJ, for those uh, insightful um, and incisive uh, observations, uh, drawing attention to the uh, Quad and the uh, Indo-Pacific uh, Command. Um, we now have a speaker joining us from Grey Zone. Uh, Grey Zone was founded in 2015 to shine a journalistic light on America's state of perpetual war and its dangerous domestic repercussions. Uh, Max Blumenthal is an award-winning journalist. Um, Max, the floor is yours. Thanks a lot. And uh, thanks, for thanks to everyone who organized this really important initiative. Um, it couldn't have come any sooner. I want to talk about the role of the media in driving this new Cold War that we find ourselves in. Uh, and specifically U.S. corporate media, but also the role of the U.S. government in driving the narrative of the U.S. media. And, you know, it was really ironic this week to see as the Chinese consulate was forcibly closed by the U.S. government in Houston without any apparent provocation, any incident at least, to provoke it. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio, who heads the de facto anti-China commission within Congress, the executive commission on China, declare uh, his justification for closing the consulate, which was that it was a base of spying. Um, this is always the, the seeming justification these days. And I found it ironic considering uh, not only the dearth of evidence for this claim, but what had recently been revealed about the protests in Hong Kong since the passage of the national security law, it's been revealed that the US Agency for Global Media, which oversees Radio Free Asia and the Voice of America, the main US government broadcasting agencies abroad, had contributed $2 million to the protests, uh, including supplying logistics and secure communications equipment through its open source initiative to protesters. And as we know, these were um, not exactly peaceful protests. Um, in many cases, they made what's happening in Portland look like a Shriners parade. Um, $2 million from the US media organization to destabilize Chinese territory. Can we imagine the US response if Xinhua or CGTN was supplying communications equipment and money, direct money, uh, rapid payouts as the US did to protesters, so-called Antifa protesters in Portland. Uh, it would be the biggest escalation we've seen of US-China relations in decades, probably since the Korean War and the way the US would react. But this is exactly what the US did in Hong Kong. Uh, we've recently seen protest leaders of these supposedly organic grassroots protests like Nathan Lau and Joshua Wong hanging out with Mike Pompeo um, as they go into exile and begin to lead a growing anti-China lobby from London to Washington. Um, and what we did at the gray zone as soon as these protests broke out was to expose these relationships between the US government and the protest leaders. Um, this is consistent with our work throughout the years um, to really probe the uh, micro socio-political uh, relationship, uh, relationship between um, the US and uh, opposition groups in countries where the US seeks regime change. 
And someone who's been really helpful in this effort with regard to the new Cold War on China is Ajit Singh, who's helped organize uh, this, uh, this discussion. Um, Ajit has done so, much, so many important reports for us at the Gray Zone on the institutions inside the US driving this new Cold War and forming the corporate media narrative of hostility. Um, you know, for me, I really started reporting on this at a um, meeting in Congress on Capitol Hill where a who's who of um, congressional leaders from both parties were present at a National Endowment for Democracy ceremony honoring uh, North, North Korean dissidents, many of the people who were quoted about Korea in US media. And it was there that I met someone named Omer Khanat, who is the head of the World Uyghur Congress um, in this hall inside the US Capitol. Um, you know, media was all around this character and I wanted to know who he was and I wanted to speak to him. And I realized that he was the head of a multi-million dollar uh, dissident lobbying group, the World Uyghur, Uyghur Congress, a very right-wing anti-communist organization funded entirely by the US government very similar to the Cuban American National Foundation or the um, groups that Juan Guaido and his um, white collar mafia are trying to form in Washington that are dedicated simply to regime change and providing quotes to US media. Um, Kanat, I, I immediately got into a conversation with Omar Kanat about a narrative that was forming at that time in 2018 about millions of Uyghurs in so-called concentration camps in the Xinjiang region of Western China. And I asked him where the uh, sources came from for these staggering numbers. And he told me that indeed the World Uyghur Congress funded by the US government was supplying many of these testimonies and so-called sources to US media but I asked, where, where, who are your sources? Where do they come from? And Omar Khanat said, well, our sources are Western media and some testimonies we get. So he basically was describing a feedback loop where it was impossible to get to the bottom of these numbers, which are reported as fact, to portray China as a new Nazi Germany in mainstream US media and now on the floor of Congress where sanctions bills have been passed on the basis of these so-called concentration camps probing deeper uh, with the help of Ajit Singh, uh, we found two sources, absolutely only two sources for these claims of millions of Uyghurs in concentration camps. The first was someone named Adrian Zentz, someone who thinks a lot like Mike Pompeo and has about as much expertise in the Chinese language and Chinese politics and society as Mike Pompeo, uh, the stooge of the Koch brothers from Kansas does. Uh, Adrian Zentz laid out his worldview in a 2010 book called Worthy to Escape, Why All Believers Will Not Be Raptured Before the Tribulation. Indeed, Adrian Zentz is an evangelical right-wing fanatic who has declared that he is on a mission from God to topple the Chinese Communist Party, which he views as a satanic communist entity. And in his book, he has argued for scriptural spanking or corporal punishment. He has called diversity and homosexuality a satanic plot. And yet Zentz is called upon as a key expert in US media on issues ranging from uh, repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang 
to supposed forced labor of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And we've shown that his methodology is shoddy. It all boils down to a few testimonies from a handful of characters in partisan Uyghur media. The other source is Chinese human rights defenders, which again is funded by the US government, is a dissident organization based in Washington, and which actually is based in the same office as Human Rights Watch and which relied in its study on testimonies from a grand total of eight Uyghurs from Xinjiang and which extrapolated the population of the villages that those eight people inhabited into the total of anywhere between 250,000 and 1 million Uyghurs in concentration camps. So the point here is that when you look at these numbers and you go to the source, there's no there there we need to have more evidence. And when you look at how these sources are quoted, whether it's figures from the World Uyghur Congress or Adrian Zentz, Chinese human rights defenders, there is no background in US media or context on what they actually believe or the fact that the United States government has incubated these organizations and is funding them. It's the same for the stories we constantly hear about forced labor in Xinjiang. The sources boil down to primarily the Australian Stra Strategy and Policy Institute, which is funded by the US State Department, the British Foreign Office and the arms industry and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, which is funded by the same exact elements, the arms industry, the US State Department and other foreign governments, CSIS. I'm sorry, Max. I'm sorry yeah. Max, could you just wind up very quickly now because you're yeah. out of time. Sorry to interrupt, it's very important. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in closing, I just wanted to get some of these details out there. Um, you know, it's really dismaying for us at the gray zone, we're, we're a left-wing site, to see other left-wing media organizations like Jacobin, Democracy Now!, The Nation, relay these U.S. government astroturf claims. They are absolutely unquestioned in respectable liberal left media. And to question them actually crosses an invisible red line where you put your career as a journalist in the US today at risk in the name of trivialities like the truth and global cooperation. As Vijay previously mentioned, Vijay Prashad previously mentioned, we are witnessing a hybrid war. And one of the key aspects of hybrid war is information warfare. Information warfare fundamentally corrupts journalism. It transforms correspondents and reporters into frontline soldiers in this hostile cold war. And so while policies may shift, uh, if executive power transfers to the Democrats in November and January, this hostile narrative and astroturfing will continue. So it's our job to provide the context and to provide an alternative to this hostile media narrative. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, Max. That was really important stuff, um, putting the spotlight on uh, the how degenerated the Western media has become. It's now my great privilege to introduce Ajamu Baraka, who is an American political activist and a former Green Party nominee for Vice President of the United States in the 2016 election. Uh, he's a prominent figure in US human rights movement and today is representing the Black Alliance for Peace, which is an organization committed to carrying forward the heritage of the anti-war anti-imperialist and pro-peace positions 
of the radical black movement in the United States. But I believe at the moment he's actually in Colombia. But anyway, carry on, Ajamu. Uh, thank you so much uh, for um, inviting me to this very, very important conversation. Um, the uh, China's ambassador to the United States posed a very simple question. Quote, is the United States ready or willing to live with another country with a very different culture, a very different political and economic system in peace, unquote. The answer to this question must be that despite the intentions of the US rulers, the people must opt for peace. For the black liberation and anti-imperialist movement in the US, we are clear, war is a class issue. And we say not one drop of blood from the black working class implored to defend the capitalist oligarchy. It is important that this position is clear because the US state wants to disconnect the ongoing black struggle for human rights, anti-colonialism and authentic democracy in the US from the broader anti-colonial and revolutionary struggles and movements globally. The US state wants to project our movement as one concerned only with black lives or winning civil rights or something called uh, racial justice, which objectively is an impossibility for a white supremacist settler colonial state. This was the strategy of the US in the late 1940s when Africans in the US were in the forefront of agitation for a radical notion of human rights that centered democracy racial justice, national and people's self-determination. The politics were often uh, explicitly anti-capitalist, seeing that uh, what we refer to today as racial capitalism as providing the material basis for white supremacist power. This, my friends, is the black radical internationalist tradition and is the perspective that informs my positions on the question of China and a new Cold War. This Black internationalist perspective was captured in response uh, by Nelson Mandela during his first visit to the US after he was released from prison in South Africa. When he was asked in what was supposed to be one of those gotcha questions about the support from the ANC and other South African liberation movements received from Cuba, Libya, and the PLO, his answer, uh, by saying that the, uh, he said that the mistake that some make is assuming that their enemies should be our enemies. Our movement, the African radical anti-imperialist internationalist movement sees the Chinese state and the Chinese people much differently than the US state and its ruling class. We center the collective human right of self-determination and national sovereignty for all peoples, nations, and states, and therefore take a position of resolute opposition to the effects or the, to the efforts by the US state to isolate, subvert, and militarily threaten the Chinese people and the Chinese government. We oppose the so-called pivot to Asia under the Obama administration and the designation of China along with Russia as global threats uh, in the 2018 uh, National Defense Authorization Act. We oppose the provocative military maneuvers by the US in the Asian Pacific region, specifically the unnecessary 
unnecessary and intentionally aggressive actions in the disputed waters of the South China Sea. And we condemn the militarization of the waterways and maritime routes from Moluccan Singapore Strait to the South China Sea and East China Sea by the US state meant to intimidate and threaten the Chinese state. We take the position that all disputes in the Asian Pacific region should be resolved by the nations of that region. My friends, we are living in a moment of history that is extremely dangerous. The irreversible decline of the US and the anxiety that it is reducing, along with the recklessness and mediocre character of the US decision makers has produced a volatile situation that some argue is more dangerous than at any point during the Cold War period with the Soviet Union. Insane strategies like the concept of pre-launch interception, the theory that the US can launch a first strike to destroy the uh, inter intercontinental ballistic missiles of Russia and China while they are still in their launchers are now becoming accepted possibilities. US policymakers responded to questions from their European allies uh, regarding the US commitment to NATO after the announcement of the uh, so-called uh, US pivot to Asia by saying that, quote, the European NATO powers should welcome the fact that the US is willing to engage in this new strategic challenge on behalf of the alliance. It is clear for those of us who must understand the white supremacist mentality because our lives depend on us understanding it, that the position voiced here is the acknowledgement of the common interest of the white West in maintaining global Western dominance. This is the collective imperialism that is committed, that was committed to upholding white supremacist colonial power that Kwame Nkrumah talked about, that characterized US uh, Western uh, leadership coming out of the Second World War. This is the, the mad cycle pathology of white supremacy. They are preparing for war, a winnable war with the Chinese. And what has been the response from the Chinese? They said that they will vigorously oppose the deployment of new weapon systems in the Asia Pacific region. In just two months, US public opinion has hardened against the Chinese with veiled racial coding from Donald Trump, Joe Biden, the corporate press, suggesting an impeding uh, and inevitable conflict on the horizon. Today, the language must be is, is, is being coded, but its intent to show up the common interest of the pan-European colonial capitalist white supremacist project is absolutely clear. That is why we say in the Black Alliance of Peace that we must name the pan-European white supremacist colonial capitalist patriarchy as the existential threat to all of humanity. Our task must be to take away the power that they have to destroy the world. This is the historic imperative. Whether we can do that will determine if we live or die. We say, shut down the Indo-Pacific campaign, a command structure, shut down AFRICOM, no to the Cold War with China, all power to the people. Thanks very much, Ajamu, uh, showing how the black movement uh, takes forward the anti-war movement. So thank you for that.
Um, I now have the great pleasure to introduce another Chinese voice, but this one with a particular distinction of being from the Chinese American community. The Chow Collective is a collective of diaspora Chinese challenging US aggression on China. Formed earlier this year, they seek to provide a bridge between the US left and Chinese Marxist and anti-imperialist politics, aiming to equip the US anti-war movement with tools and analysis to better combat the new Cold War. Um, the collective has already produced some of the most profound and perceptive articles I've read so far this year. Speaking on their behalf is Sean Hao Chin Kang. Thank you so much for that introduction. Those of us who follow us and support us at Chiao may know me as one of the translators. Chiao Collective and I personally are very honored to speak today in such distinguished company. In the past few months, the Asian diaspora around the world, but particularly in the West, have been experiencing increased hostility. Due to talk of the Wuhan virus or Kung flu pushed by some, many have come to face scrutiny, alienation, and even violence. A 39-year-old woman in Brooklyn is doused in chemical acid while taking out the trash. An Asian-American family, including two toddlers, are stabbed while shopping in a Texas supermarket and a 60-year-old Chinese man died of cardiac arrest in Sydney, Australia, because bystanders, presuming he was infected with COVID-19, refused to administer CPR. As a collective of Chinese diaspora activists, Chow Collective has striven to place the interpersonal hate and Sinophobia we witness in our daily lives into a larger structural context. We see domestic racism and international imperialism as two sides of the same coin. We reject claims to imperial citizenship multicultural belonging and safety through policing as means to oppose anti-Asian hate violence in the time of COVID-19. Instead, this violence must be cut off at its source by ending the principal contradiction of US imperialism as it coheres around the so-called China threat. Recent American escalation against China may seem abrupt, but not when put into context. Obama's pivot to Asia, while ostensibly made in the spirit of partnership, quietly shifted 60% of US naval and air capacity to the Asia Pacific. Trump merely builds on that, marking China as the Pentagon's number one priority, warning of a coming class of civilizations, and just this month declaring the CPC's guiding ideology of Marxism-Leninism as antithetical to American values. This bipartisan support for being tough on China actually finds its roots in the American imperial project. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the United States has waged war around the world unopposed. China too, often found itself the victim of imperialist aggression, including the infamous 1999 bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, and the 1993 Yinghe incident, in which a Chinese container ship was forced by the United States to strand at sea for 24 days. Bush Jr.'s engagement anticipated the political liberalization of China, or the eroding power of the CPC and its elimination as an impediment to the US's own interests. China has instead refused to submit to imperial pressure. Moreover, it has a growing capacity to support so-called rogue states against American unilateralism affected through aggressive hybrid warfare. This has now led the United States to confront China in a desperate bid to preserve its hegemony. As anti-imperialists, socialists, and peace activists we must be prepared, be prepared to meet this challenge head on. 
Ultimately, we must understand that imperialism is a being of many faces. The hostility experienced by the Asian diaspora in the West, the centuries-long program of dispossession and genocide of indigenous peoples, refusal to address deep-rooted grief over racialized and militarized policing, and continuing warfare and famine in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. These are all branches of the same root, sick and shattered societies birthed from the contradictions of imperialism. The new Cold War agenda is dangerous and must be thoroughly understood. Instead of approaching the crisis of COVID in the spirit of science and cooperation, the United States and its allies have cynically chosen to continue inhumane sanctions on Iran, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Lebanon, and Venezuela, among many others, starving their citizens of much needed medical supplies. While in the United States, 148,000 lives have been lost to COVID, disproportionately in indigenous, black, and immigrant communities. Yet the US is not funding pandemic response, but instead de dedicating $20 billion towards regaining the advantage in the Asia Pacific. This not only deprives the American poor of much needed resources, but redirects them to the equally criminal occupation of Ryukyu, Guam, and Hawaii in the name of containing China. Meanwhile, China has proven itself a responsible and accountable actor in the face of global challenges such as COVID, climate catastrophe, and the struggle against poverty. It has conceived of and practices the foreign policy doctrine of a shared future for humankind. Since the onset of COVID, China has sent billions of tons of medical aid, indiscriminate of ideology or alliance, committed to increased funding of the World Health Organization, and has declared that the Chinese vaccine would be a public good, prioritized for global South nations. Crisscrossing the world at great risk to themselves, Chinese and Cuban medical brigades embody socialist internationalism, understanding that human solidarity is required for today's increasingly complex problems. Some Western leftists misperceive these diametrically opposed records and think US aggression on China as simply an inter-imperial rivalry. False equivalences between the US and China only obscure the roots of this coming conflict, the desire for the maintenance of US hegemony at any cost. Sitting on the sidelines takes the side of the status quo, that of preserving violent imperialism over the global South. Amidst the highly propagandized Western left, Chow Collective sees part of our role as a bridge towards the Chinese left. Highlighting the nature of China's socialist project, its vision of win-win cooperation, and the lasting, vital legacy of the Chinese revolution and its principles of people's democracy, internationalism, and anti-colonialism. The United States has identified these very principles as an unacceptable threat to its own bloody hegemony. It's up to us and the Imperial Corps to challenge, oppose, and dismantle every imperialist roadblock to a world of peace, cooperation, multilateralism, and shared development. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that, Sean. That was great. Um, highlighting the uh, underlying structural contradiction and the contrast between uh, the US and what China is starting to do in the world. So thank you for that. Now, understanding China in the world requires us to take a broad sweep of history. One of the few Western scholars to do so with his concept of China as a civilization state is Martin Jacques, 
author of the internationally acclaimed When China Rules the World. Over to you, Martin. Thank you very much, Jenny. I'd just like to start by congratulating uh, the organisers uh, of this really timely uh, conference and also embrace the breadth of the conference. It's terrific to find representation from uh, such a wide uh, number uh, of countries. Well, uh, I just want to, I won't uh, go on too long. I just wanted to make four main points. The first is, well, where did all this start? Or when did all this start? And I think really the origins of this Cold War onslaught from the United States essentially date from the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, this was uh, completely unexpected as far as the West was concerned. And it led to a big shift in the center of gravity of power from the United States to China. And it undermined the previous position that the Americans had held, which had underpinned their conception of the relationship between the two countries after the Nixon uh, Mao Accord. And those two propositions were, firstly, that China could never be an economic, serious economic challenger to uh, the United States. And secondly, uh, the Chinese, China's rise was unsustainable uh, because it didn't have a Western style political system. Well, in 2008, 2009, that period, these positions were undermined. And I think basically the American governing elite began to shift its position and from something different. It now came to regard China, not in that kind of potentially benign relationship, but as a threat to American global hegemony. And uh, that process continued and uh, developed and of course uh, acquired uh, its uh, present meaning with the election of Trump as the president uh, in 2016. And I would characterize that this period and the present as uh, the West, well, the America in particular, to a lesser extent, other parts of the West as hegemonic angst. They are now you know, feeling uh, the danger of being uh, displaced. And this is, brings me to my second point. And that is that uh, what this clearly shows is the inability of uh, the United States as the presiding hegemon in the world to come to terms with the fact that it cannot continue in that position, uh, that it's an unsustainable position, but it cannot bring itself to believe in it because you know, essentially the American DNA is that country has to be the number one country in the world. But that is not possible. And we can see that already very clearly in all sorts of ways. But we're going to be witnesses to a very painful process, not just over the next few years, but I would suggest over quite a long period of America writhing, trying to prevent this, uh, this trend, this inevitable, it seems to me, trend of its displacement as the most powerful country in the world uh, happening. And, uh, uh, and, it's, uh, and I wonder whether, if I can just have a moment of a more broader historical reflection, I wonder how long it will take the US and other countries like my own UK to come to terms 
with a world which is no longer Western dominated and Western centric. Um, it, hegemons find it very difficult to let go. I mean, even China, you know, if you go back to uh, the late 18th and early 19th century when China's, China began its decline, it found it, it, it took 150 years really for China to come to terms with a different reality. And uh, I think it's going to take the West and America in particular a long time to come to terms with this new sort of reality. Um, now, where are we now? Well, I think I would personally, I've come around to the view that we're actually in a, the Cold War has started. It's not something, it's not the coming Cold War, it started. Of course, Cold Wars, the last Cold War lasted a long time and it goes through many phases. So it's not a static situation, uh, but I think we've now uh, entered uh, the new Cold War. Um, and uh, and I think we should expect it to last uh, uh, quite a long time in reality, because the only thing that will bring it to a, a conclusion is if the essentially is if the United States shift its position. What does that mean? It comes to terms with the reality that it has to share primacy in the world with China. That is really the condition, it seems to me, that, that has that, that's the historical condition uh, that has to uh, change. Um, when uh, when the Americans decided to at uh, 72 hours notice close the consulate building, Chinese consulate in Houston, my reaction was rather the same as Wang Wen said earlier on. I would not be surprised if the United States doesn't break off diplomatic relations with China well before the presidential election. Of course, this is all part of the theater of uh, Trump's re-election. But I think that that is definitely a possibility taking us back to before 1979 when Carter uh, came to recognize China, uh, uh, give diplomatic relations uh, to China. So uh, my final point is this, and that is, uh, uh, I don't think, but obviously this Cold War will have some of the characteristics of the previous Cold War. And I think that's been illustrated by some of the points that have been made in the discussion. Um, but I don't think it will be a rerun of the last Cold War. And I would say that for various reasons, but I would just like to highlight two reasons why I feel that to be the case. Firstly, China is far stronger than the Soviet Union ever was. The Soviet Union was never a serious economic challenger to the United States. And China is in a totally different position. China is already in some areas already ahead of the United States. And its potential and capacity is much greater than that of the United States. So the United States is faced with a completely different kind of problem in China as compared with the Soviet Union. And the second thing I would like to emphasize is that I don't think that China's response is going to be same, the same as the Soviet Union's. I mean, I think one of the things I would criticize the Soviet Union for was you know, to go toe to toe on military expenditure uh, in an arms race with the United States, which it could not afford anyway. China is not going to make that mistake in my view. You can see that already. I mean, although it's uh, military spending has been rising as other people have already said, uh, graphically, uh, China's military expenditure is well below that uh, of the United States. So I think that China, does not, China will not conduct itself in the same kind of way 
as the Soviet Union uh, did. And I think it's extremely important. And I think that this will uh, greatly assist uh, the, uh, those forces around the world who are worried about the Cold War and who, like us now, are seeking to campaign against it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for that, Martin. Um, the big picture and the succinct analysis. So thank you for letting us have the benefit of that. Um, Martin is doing a great deal of media work at the moment with lots of interviews on lots of different uh, news channels. So please keep it up, Martin. Um, our second speaker now from China is Yang Hanyi, who is the senior editor of the influential Chinese news website Guancha. Guancha literally means to observe in Chinese. I think their intention is to post some videos uh, from this event on their website, and I know it will really mean a great deal to people in China to see people around the world prepared to stand up uh, against uh, US bullying. Okay, over to you. Well, thank you, Jenny, for a very kind introduction. Yes, uh, Guancha means, Guancha literally means observer. So I just want to share with you uh, what I have observed. There's a famous line from a Chinese poem saying that ducks are harbingers of spring because they are the first ones to know when rivers warm up. I think likewise, we're the first ones to get chills when relations freeze. It was late last year when Henry Kissinger observed that the two nations were in the foothills of the new Cold War. But I think even before that, I knew winter was coming because there have been some election when forces from the fringe uh, made use of social maladies to launch a coup against the establishment. It's popular for China's departure from its earlier policy of hide and bide, which is, I think, a mistranslation of Deng Xiaoping's famous axiom, and also to China's embrace of the so-called newfound assertiveness. Whereas in China, people tend to see it as the result of America's disillusionment with its failure of converting China into a liberal democracy through economic engagement. But no matter how people look at it, no matter how much the voices of reason in both countries want to salvage the situation, I think we ought to frankly acknowledge the fact that the two major countries in the world are going to have an uneasy relationship, featuring heavy competition, deep mistrust, and uh, strong antagonism and limited cooperation. And um, we are in it for the long haul. Two months ago, I interviewed Professor John Mearsheimer, a renowned IR theorist from the United States we examined similarities and differences between um, uh, the current situation and the Cold War in history. But given his theoretical framework, it was hardly surprising that the Blunt suggested that we are already in the Cold War. Indeed, his assessment is echoed by many realists in China who also view the international system as an iron cage. What really struck me was a stinging remark on how the pandemic has aggravated, not ameliorated the situation as, as optimists would have assumed. They used to say that China and the United States could put away the differences if there's to be an alien invasion. In a way, the coronavirus is the alien, but it hasn't stopped the bat from getting worse. And people used to argue against the prospect of the Cold War by pointing to greater economic interdependence, lower likelihood of proxy conflicts, 
absence of diametrically opposed ideologies. While many conditions still hold true, it is alarming to see new realities being actively shaped up by Cold War warriors in the Trump administration. For example, the nature of the rivalry between China and the United States has nothing to do with ideologies. Anyone visiting China is able to spot the endless differences between this country and those that belong to the former Soviet bloc. But this hasn't stopped the likes of Pompeo from singling out and demonizing the CPC. I think this is a highly calculated, well-engineered move aimed at portraying the rivalry as an ideological showdown, thereby reviving the West's fear of Soviet communism, which they hope will work as a call to arms against China. And this is highly dangerous, as it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy, making your already thorny relationship much harder to manage. I think what's, what's even more um, groups and figures that were previously considered unorthodox, eccentric and edgy, even by the American standard, I think that's the nicest way of putting it. By Chinese standard, they're the clowns, traitors, and cultists. But they are now openly invited into policy consultation and decision-making processes and crowding out seasoned veterans and advocates for engagement. So much that, that to the extent that there's no bona fide China expert on the team. And the establishment lead knows very well that deep-seated bias and twisted views are hardwired into the minds of those people, but somehow they believe what they can get from the marriage of convenience outweighs the cost of making unsound judgment. And that is insanity. Because though fraught with difficulties, China and US relationship is a single most um, consequent, a single most consequential bilateral relationship in the world. And China understands the future would not be smooth sailing. It anticipates more easily agitated United States. And we are ready to open up even more to create a level playing field to compete and cooperate with the United States in providing domestic prosperity and global public goods. But this should be a fair game between us and the bald eagle. It's not a dirty fight with snakes and rats. And by and large, I think China has moved in the right direction, particularly uh, its engagement with the vast developing world to facilitate the making of a community of shared future, which is woven together, not by abstract ideologies, but through bonds of partnership on socioeconomic matters. And uh, we must admit that we will encounter profound challenges going forward, not least because the US tries to sell a horror story of China to the world. And in, in this regard, China suffers a, a great setbacks because it doesn't come on the same level of soft power the United States enjoys. Therefore, it's hard to get its point across cultural boundaries. But in the end, I believe actions speak louder than words. And looking ahead, I think China should keep its head cool. Um, not be discouraged by a spiking curve of hostility in some parts of the world, most notably the Five Eyes countries, where the top diplomats in the US seem to favor confrontation over diplomacy. But the heart that they tried to drive a wedge between the Chinese people, the state and the party, they're firm we should stand together, not only within China, but also to reach out to the people of the global south, to those in the West, and particularly to those in the United States, because they are the ones who has most to lose in the new Cold War. And America is struggling with its response to its own decline. There are voices arguing for managed decline, let go of the hegemonic empire, return to, to a normal nation state, accept a more democratic, more pluralist, more multilateral world order. But there are also voices of reactionary rage, just refusing to go gentle into the good night. The conversation I had with uh, Professor Mearsheimer left me with an impression that even people with immense intellect lack the faculty to reimagine the world not along lines of domination and hierarchy but of nexus and centrality 
And China has no intention to replace or succeed American hegemony, it doesn't want to sit on top of others and push its way around. It's a pity that the United States and um, by extension the West are too absorbed in their own historical experience to understand a different set of norms that has shaped China's behavior for millennia. And today we're gathered here to condemn those who have no scruples about dragging entire humanity into division and conflict. They may hold sway today inside the beltway, but remember we are many and they are few. Let's harden our hearts and renew our faith, not to miracles or supernatural beings, but in people. Unite together, we can move the world. Thank you. Thanks so much, Hanyi, for those inspiring words and how important it is for people like yourself, yourself uh, to uh, continue to develop uh, China's communications and soft power. Thank you. Um, now, we have two speakers on the panel from Latin America, another important poll in the multipolar world. Uh, the first is from Venezuela, which of course has bravely sustained its stand against the US hybrid war um, as the latter has perfected its techniques, which are now uh, it's now endeavoring to use also against China. So we have uh, very delighted to have Carlos Ron, the Vice Minister of North America, uh, the, sorry, the Vice Minister for North America, Venezuela's Ministry of Foreign Relations. Well, thank you very much uh, for this opportunity and it's great to be with uh, such a great panel and see so, uh, so many uh, familiar faces. Um, well, I come, like you said, on behalf of the people of Venezuela, the Bolivarian Revolution, of, uh, on behalf of President Nicolás Maduro as well, we salute this conference. We wanted to participate because we feel it is uh, very important uh, that we stand up against this uh, pretext of a new Cold War. If there's one region around the world that knows uh, very well the catastrophic effects of a uh, Cold War, it certainly is Latin American and, and the Caribbean. Uh, for a large part of the 20th century, we were one of the main battlefields in that war. Uh, thousands of people died, were tortured, imprisoned, disappeared as a result of Washington's Cold War uh, tactics. Meanwhile, democracy, uh, land reform, human rights, environmental rights, you name it, they were all sacrificed in the name of the Cold War. And international law was, co was constantly trampled upon. We had coups in Guatemala, Grenada, Chile, Brazil, Argentina, Dominican Republic, the bloody civil wars in Colombia, in Central America, El Salvador, Nicaragua. And, and the criminal blockade against Cuba, that it, that it still exists, this is all stemming from that Cold War. So, you know, uh, we, we have to oppose uh, coming to uh, entering this uh, new uh, or a new environment that, that, that resembles that one. Um, you know, after the Cold War was formally over and the Washington consensus took, took over, it, it devastated with devastating economic policies uh, throughout the region, deepening the divide between those uh, few that then had everything and the many that had nothing until the people started reacting to this and turning uh, turning it a bit around. And during the last 20 years, what we've had in Latin America has been, uh, you know, a struggle where uh, new governments came in, new popular democracies came in uh, with people that, that leaders that resembled uh, their people and that countered this uh, U.S. corporate uh, dominance, trying to find an independent way, one that opened the door for regional integration, but also very importantly, for integration with other parts of the world that uh, we didn't, we weren't accustomed to. China became then a, a strategic partner for Latin America because it didn't come with that Cold War mentality. It didn't approach uh, the region, Venezuela in particular, I could, I could speak for, uh, as property or as 
possible colonies, swap partners for shared development and shared growth. And, and Washington resents this because, you know, honestly, I think it, it can understand that there can be other sets of values around the world that don't uh, mimic their own. Uh, the United States has never looked at Latin America as a strategic partner, but rather always from an imperialist and from a supremacist per perspective. In the 1800s, when the struggle for independence of, of the South American nations, Thomas Jefferson wrote about, uh, about our countries saying, those countries cannot be in the better hands, meaning the hands of colonialist Spain. Uh, my fear is that they're too feeble to hold them till our population can be sufficiently advanced to gain it from them piece by piece. So this, this idea that we are the property of the United States it is entrenched in, 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 into uh, their history. And it became doctrine, it became the Monroe Doctrine, and didn't stay back in, uh, in the, eight, in the uh, 1800s. You know, it's still here today, and both of Trump's uh, Secretary of State, Tillerson and Pompeo, have invoked the Monroe Doctrine, uh, so has uh, you know, Bolton uh, when he was in, in, in place. It's particular to say that, that they wanted to uh, invoke this principle to counter Chinese presence in the region. The thing is, for us, this is really about what, you know, the U.S.'s uh, uh, geopolitical competition. This is an issue of self-determination. We in Venezuela, as well as any other Latin American nation, we have the sovereign right to have the relations we consider are beneficial to our people. And no Cold War uh, logic should have a different say. And this is a matter of principle for us. What makes us worse is that we see this new, this new uh, Cold War building up. In, in, in the middle of the huge crisis that, that the United States is having, and a lot of our uh, friends have spoken about this, but you know we're, we're facing you know this pandemic. Over 145,000 lives have been lost. Uh, more than 40 million people have lost their jobs, and it's disproportionately affecting the poor, the racially discriminated, the homeless, the undocumented workers. And so, it's, so the United States seeks again to turn this into an issue with a foreign of a foreign threat. And it looks for China. And by the way, you know, it's not only this administration, but you see the discourse of the of the you know possible alternative, and that they're all trying to uh, 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 exacerbate uh, this uh, this shady uh, threat. You know, we have stood up against this vision. We have stood up against the, this vision of, of Latin America as a as a property of the United States, and we're paying the price. And the, you know, there, there's a constant uh, there's a hybrid war against Venezuela with, with illegal economic sanctions with the threat of military intervention with, you know, the attempts at diplomatic isolation, the fierce propaganda that, that talks about uh, the Venezuelan democratic process. And there's no real interest in Venezuela's well-being or the people of Venezuela. Uh, you know, if there was, there wouldn't be, you know, blocking of food, medicine from coming in, uh, gasoline, you know, down to, to this point, you know. As, as opposed to what we have with China, where with China we have a relationship of, co of co cooperation, primarily a relationship of respect. You know, China does has been a key ally for us in, in this COVID nineteen crisis. In the middle of you know this blockade, we've received you know help from the technical help. We have the teams working here in in Venezuela to to allow us to you know to, to craft up our policies to to deal with this. We've had uh, uh, you know uh, uh, aid that they've offered aid just this week uh, with the vaccines to all of Latin America. So this is a very different concept from the Monroe Doctrine. We wish we could have. A, a, a working relationship with the United States, one based on respect. But if we're going to start from the Monroe Doctrine, we're going to part from the, the, the arrogance and the aggression to think that we are their property, their, their backyard, it's just impossible. So this is our context, our context from Venezuela. This is why we leave, you know, uh, we have to fight this uh, new Cold War. 
we call all nations, we call people and all movements to stand for peace, to stand for stability, to stand uh, for international law. We have real challenges that we must face together. You know, we have planets running out of resources. We have, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the poverty that's, that could still be turned around if we were, you know, uh, somehow in focus on that and not on starting a new Cold War. So from Venezuela, you know, we, we, we are in solidarity. This is our perspective uh, and we are in solidarity uh, with all people fighting against this new Cold War. And we say no to new Cold War against China or against any other people. We are here for peace and for uh, uh, brotherly relationships. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carlos. And we're in solidarity with you. Um, I'm sure we all wish the Ven Venezuelan people every strength uh, as they stand up to the United States in this difficult time. Um, now, I'm pleased to introduce our next speaker, who is from Russia. Uh, Russia and China have a well-established partnership for peace through a multipolar balance, uh, challenging US dominance with their call for the equality of states. Yuri Tavrovsky is a professor at the Russian, Russian People's Relationship University. He's a China expert who has been studying China's history for more than four decades, and he has been very quick off the mark, I must say, in authoring a new book, America Against China, Cold War in Times of Coronavirus. Over to you, Yuri. Hello, everyone. I used to be a Cold War warrior myself. Not a wolf warrior, but rather a bear warrior. In the 70s, I was writing commentaries, news, for Radio Moscow Chinese service. And in the late 80s, I was coordinating Soviet propaganda on China and to China in the ideology department of the Communist Party Central Committee. In 1989, it was a great pleasure to take part in ending the Soviet-Chinese Cold War. When I accompanied Michael Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, Secretary General of the Communist Party, on his historic visit to Beijing. The propaganda war was generally generously funded, but much more resources uh, uh, were spent on the military buildup along the border with China. Uh, my country had to prepare at that time for hot wars on both Eastern and Western France. And, and all this contributed in the collapse of the Soviet Union, even without a real war. That initial first Cold War was on the brink of nuclear confrontation several times. Not only during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, but also in 1963, uh, when uh, President John Kennedy uh, planned a preemptive strike against China to stop its nuclear program from fruition. Kennedy even offered Moscow to bomb the Lopnor test site together. In 1969, Moscow was going to punish Chinese adventurists with a nuclear strike after clashes on the border between the two countries. The new Cold War 
uh, we was started by the United States against China only a couple of years ago, but develops with a threatening, unprecedented speed. It is further destabilizing the global security, already suffering from Russo-American confrontation, Russo-American Cold War, which is going on. America apparently wants to have two Cold Wars at the same time. It is harmful to the world's stability, but also contrary to their own strategic interests. Confrontation on two fronts has ended badly for Germany and Japan in the 40s and for the Soviet Union in the 90s. We in Russia have learned the lesson and do not want to join one more Cold War. What we want is to see a multipolar and stable world successfully dealing with uh, extremely serious common issues which confront it, such as arms control, climate change, control of pandemics, and economic development. Therefore, I strongly support the main idea of this meeting, of this webinar. A new Cold War against China is against the interests of humanity. Thank you very much. Well, Sorry, I forgot to unmute myself there. Uh, yes. Thank you so much, Yuri. How important it is, uh, you know, the, that Russia and uh, China uh, work together in uh, tackling this new Cold War and how far the relationship between Russia and China has come. Um, I'm now uh, delighted to introduce to you Dr. Radhika Desai, who is a professor at the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. Uh, where she set up a geopolitical economy research group. She's the author of Geopolitical Economy After US Hegemony, Globalization and Empire. Um, she's been associated for over 10 years with the World Association for Political Economy, working with Chinese Marxist scholars. Um, the, um, that association was set up by the well-known Marxist uh, scholar, uh, Professor Cheng Fu. Over to you then, Radhika. Um, thanks very much, um, Jenny. Um, and hello, everyone. Thanks for attending this. And many, many thanks to the organizers for um, organizing this extremely well-designed event. I'm delighted to hear this diversity of voices, particularly from China. And I've just put in the chat box um, the uh, title of the Chinese translation to geopolitical economy for the critically important audience from China. I'd like to add that I'm also co-editor of the New Cold War website, www.newcoldwar.org. And we have been tracking developments along these lines since 2014. And uh, we'd love to see further material on it. Um, what I want to address is um, the sort of broader issue. I think a lot of um, uh, uh, panelists have pointed to a number of uh, so given us a rich panoply of the details of the situation. I want to now step back and say, you know, if we, if we want to protest and plead the case of new Cold War, how do we ensure that the new Cold War against China does not come to pass or, or is, is stopped if, if we believe it's already underway, which is 
kind of true. Um, the key lies, I think, in the evolution of what I call the geopolitical economy of capitalism up to its present moment. Um, this geopolitical economy promises, the present moment promises to be a further reversal of fortunes for imperialism, a reversal that can be said to, that can be traced back to the late 19th century in the competition of imperial powers, which culminated in the First World War, the weakening of imperialism and decolonization after the Second World War, and it continues to this day in the rise of multipolarity. Cold wars, previous and present, have been ways in which the West has tried to stem um, this, uh, this reversal of imperialism. And the present one is significant because it takes place at a time when capitalism is at a lower ebb than ever before. I think this gives it the distinctive character. Uh, in this regard, I want to make three points. The first one is that the relations between countries do not flow ethereally above societies. They are built on the dynamics of societies, particularly on the unstable dynamics arising from the contradictions of capitalism. They have driven the, birth, uh, driven the international relations of capitalism from its birth until today. So today we see the drive towards the new Cold War which is also resulting in opposed alliances on the one hand between the capitalist powers led by their most neoliberal powers such as the United States, the United Kingdom, the various Anglo countries in particular. Um, uh, and and uh, so it arrives, uh, they're trying to create a, a, an alignment between these powers on the one hand and the rivals and defiant victims of these powers. So China, Venezuela, Iran, Russia, et cetera, all of these are a combination of rivals and defiant victims of these powers. The essence of the dynamics of uh, uh, neoliberal capitalism today lies in the crumbling of neoliberal orders that the pandemic has accelerated but not caused. It has led to a disarray of capitalist forces. It has endangered their hold on developments, both domestic and international. The new aggression against China stems directly from this. It constitutes a SOP or a substitute for addressing the real problems of the economy, which popular forces are demanding. They cannot really address the uh, real problems of the economy because that would definitely involve advancing away from capitalism towards some sort of socialism, which these capitalist classes do not want to do. That is what makes this moment very dangerous. They are they will do everything in their power to hang on to this uh, situation. Only two things can uh, stop this, and they probably have to work in combination. One is the deft management of this danger by China, and I'll tell you why I think it can do that, and by China's allies, and by progressive politics in the US and other imperialist countries. So popular forces in neo uh, neoliberal countries can play a critical role. In order to understand why and how their role can be played, I come to my second point. Imperialism has historically benefited the, uh, uh, the, the, the working classes of the imperial core, but its reversal has the promise of benefiting them even more. So Lenin was not wrong to when he talked about the labor aristocracy in imperialist countries. However, the benefits they derive from being a labor aristocrats in imperialist societies are nothing compared to what they stand to gain from the reversal of imperialism. Let me just give you two examples. Take Roosevelt. 
he's known for the new deal as a sort of you know a, a period of you know a, a, a alleviation of the condition of working classes but he also launched the good neighbor policy it involved a softening of the us stance towards latin america and it was part of a larger reorientation of american foreign policy which included the establishment of relations with the soviet union against which up to that point, the US had been co uh, conducting an unremitting war to try to overturn the fledgling revolution. So these were the international equivalents of the Green New Deal. They went together and became policy only when the Great Depression brought US capitalism to its knees. The US was the worst sufferer of the Great Depression. And even then, it only happened after an administration able to acknowledge this reality and the need to address it was elected. That's an important point to remember. That's why politics makes a difference. And uh, so, and the second example is simply the golden age of welfareist Keynesian welfare states. They went hand in hand with decolonization for a reason. It is because of the reversal of imperialism, which narrowed the options of ruling classes at home, that domestic investment and domestic consumption became more important than it could be for countries with ample colonies. So I think that in this way, the, the anti-imperialism and working class movements have a stronger bond than the labor aristocracy thesis, which is not untrue, underlines. And that's, that involves a whole bunch of things there. My final point is that two developments are coming together to make an international order which has no prospect any longer of being driven by the unstable dynamics of world capitalism. And therefore, it is possible to transit to a new international order which can be under the control of saner powers which are committed to consciously organizing their societies in popular interest. But to get there, we have to stop the new Cold War being sponsored by the neoliberal capitalist interest and in the core neoliberal countries. And we must undermine their power. So I think going into the future, I think we, we may also see, as we are already beginning to see, a division between the very strictly neoliberal, largely Anglo-American uh, Anglo, uh, uh, countries, and on the other hand, say, continental Europe, which may well choose to, to, to go another way. Okay, so a couple of sub points here. The disarray of neoliberalism means that more and more, more and more capitalism is not going to be able to deliver. It's going to be a no-show at major problems. So more and more societies will have to think about organizing their productive activities consciously. And I, by this, I mean, including the neoliberal societies, particularly the neoliberal societies. The more democratically they do it, the more they will lay claim to be socialist or to be on a socialist path, however. This cannot happen unless the left in these countries once again begins to think about planning and organizing economies, something they have neglected to do for decades. Uh, this neglect, which, which, which includes fantasizing about, you know, a, a, a decentralized small uh, unit uh, capitalism without planning or whatever. Um, so th this neglect has permitted them to be uncritically critical of actual attempts to build socialism, whether in the USSR in the Eastern Bloc or today in China, Cuba or, or, or uh, Vietnam, etc. Actual responsibility for building an alternative to capitalism will compel them to learn from these attempts. They are not perfect, but responsible critique of their limitations Will, will be necessary and can only help the people of those countries as well. That is to say the countries already on a socialist path. But engagement must replace dismissal, the dismissal that has reigned so far. So finally, the rise of this society, the, uh, uh, 
the Communist Party state that is poised to be the leading power, although I agree with the point that is made that it does not seek to replace the, the alleged hegemony of the United States. This opens the door to saner international relations of mutual benefit between sovereign countries, a sort of pluripolar world, as Hugo Chavez would have said, uh, who will sovereign countries who will promote the popular interests each in their own way. And China's ability to lead rests on the beneficial economic pull it exerts on its neighbors. Um, as the late and, and, and much missed Jude Woodward pointed out in her book, The US versus China, Asia's New Cold War. China can counteract the largely symbolic rewards the US and the West can offer because it has something much more substantial to offer. Its economic magnetism is going to play an important role and is already permitting China to respond in a saner way because it is less threatened, it is more confident. Capitalism is much weaker today than before and China has built her strengths. China has built a house of bricks, not a house of straw or, or, or whatever that can easily be blown down. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, thanks uh, Radhika. It's really important to have your um, political economy input, which helps us to uh, think about the way ahead. So thanks very much for that. Now our penultimate speaker is from Brazil. Elias Jabor is an associate professor at Rio de Janeiro State University's Economic Science College. He's written about China's economic reforms and relations with Latin America. So, Elias, we're very keen to hear your views on the current events. So, please go ahead. Uh, thank, thank you too much. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank the organizers of this important event for the invitation. I'm uh, honored to be beside the great scholars and activists from different countries. I send a brotherly hug to my friends Fiona Edwards and John Ross and the Chiao Collective and the great Indian Marxist scholar. Vijay Prashad, directly from Brazil, I send my greetings to the Chinese people, the Communist Part of China, and the lovers of the peace and progress of all countries. Uh, I speak maybe directly from the probably the worst place to live in the world. I speak from Brazil, uh, a place governed by an uh, intimate ally of Donald Trump, uh, and which is already the second country in the world most is the second uh, most affected uh, country in the world uh, by the coronavirus. Uh, the liberate uh, policy of genocide against the poor people is being consciously carried out by Brazilian government. I repeat, Brazil is probably, probably the worst place to live in the world today. And Brazil, I repeat again, is the un unconditional ally of imperialism in the world. Uh, Brazil now uh, is uh, like uh, Israel of Latin America. Uh, in a several events and debates, I have been asked about the post-pandemic world. Uh, of course, I, uh, I avoid answering questions about economics. Uh, for example, the people want to know if the, peop if the industrial policies uh, will be returned in the world. Uh, I don't believe that. Uh, I have responded uh, uh, in other in other in other field. Uh, I have responded uh, very directly that the world is, is and will continue to be an uh, increasingly dangerous place to live. And the reason is very simple: uh, the United States needs once again another war. Uh, the United States needs to produce every day more reasons to keep your policy of permanent uh, intervention on the world over the world. 
they need to, to hit uh, the reasons for their failure as a counter to save lives, uh, lives against the coronavirus from around the world. And the United States must, must keep and promote chaos in the world uh, as a means of maintaining the, uh, its power. Uh, China made a major uh, and biggest social revolution of all times uh, 70 years ago, 71 years ago. And since then, uh, then have been gaining more and more respect and admiration around the world. In the past four years, its correct development policy has led uh, to removal uh, more or less 850 million people from the poverty line. And will be the first big, uh, big uh, country in the world to declare victory against poverty in the next year. Brazil, for example, uh, after the coup, uh, more or less 20 million people entered in, in, or come back to poverty line. Its size, size uh, gigantism, and history qualified China to take a special place in history. The same place that, that socialism should occupy in the face of an immoral and decadent capitalism. The possible new Cold War against China will not be uh, just a war against China and socialism. It will be a permanent war against all peoples. The world will live moments of extreme tension. For example, in the past five years, just about uh, every country that has received Chinese investment has experienced some kind of political destabilization. Brazil has been shaken by a large protest uh, allegedly against corruption since 2013. But at the bottom, it was a kind of hybrid war against popular governments that approached China uh, and created uh, BRICS, uh, Lula da Silva and Dilma Rousseff. The two 2016 coup and the election of Jair Bolsonaro were the result of an intense hybrid war waged by imperialism against the Brazilian people. It's evidently against the growing Chinese influence in Latin America. The moment is very serious. Uh, imperialism has promoted the, on my continent a series of events uh, that must be seen as part of this new Cold War. In addition, in addition to the 2060 Cup of State Brazil and two, uh, 2018 elections, all progressive governments in, the, in our region of American have been attacked, overthrown, or militarily, militarily surrounded. The Cup in Bolivia was another tragic event uh, in Latin America. Uh, Ecuador was sold to the International Monetary Fund, and Venezuela is experiencing now an intense process and seed of seed and annihilation. China sh has shown itself to be a great hope to the world. Its large investment in infrastructure around the world has been an element capable to, of bringing development and new possibilities to the world, especially to the countries of Africa and Latin America. Uh, its state-owned companies are the great spearhead uh, that has peacefully demonstrated, demonstrated to the world that there were alternatives to financial dictatorship exercises by imperialism and its agencies, uh, circus, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Uh, a great uh, event occurred in the last days was significant and a point of view. 
the recent trade information agreement signed with the, between China and the Islamic Republic of Iran is a milestone in the recent history of international relations. China has intervened very positively in the world and inaugurated new forms of relation between peoples and countries. But although imperialism is decadent, it still has an immense capacity to influence and destabilize any and no culture which has countered the imperialist interests. It is the largest, largest and military and financial power in the world. It, is, it, it uses the great advantage of being a country that issues the currency, uh, uh, the service uh, as a reference for financial transactions, transactions and turns uh, that currency into weapon of mass destruction. Uh, the new forms of hybrid uh, warfare in uh, war uh, inaugurated during the Obama administration has been used to, to promote instability and the removal of progressive governments around, and the, uh, around the world. And it has been widely used to attack China and, and its national sovereignties. sovereignty. Let us make from uh, this uh, great meeting a great call to progressives from the, over the world in the world in the order to join forces against a new era of aggressions promoted by imperialists, imperialism around the world. No, and a new Cold War is a, uh, no, and a new Cold War is not a great need for the present time. Thank you too much. Thank you very much, Elias. Again, really important to uh, hear, to have an input from uh, Brazil uh, to get uh, a multipolar picture. Um, now we've reached uh, our last panelist uh, to round off this excellent panel and to help us look ahead. Uh, we have another speaker uh, from the all important peace movement, that other world superpower. Kate Hudson is a world renowned, uh, is from the world renowned British campaign for nuclear disarmament. She's an activist as well as, sorry, she's an academic as well as an activist and as chair and then general secretary of the CND for many years. Uh, she's seen the organization through the period of wars in the Middle East, the Ukraine crisis, the North Korean nuclear crisis. So she has a wealth of experience and she's helped to keep the anti-nuclear movement in Britain in close step with the anti-war movement, with CND's commitment to opposing wars in which nuclear weapons might be used. Over to you, Kate. Thanks very much indeed, Jenny, and greetings to this conference from CND. And I want to give a really big thank you to the organisers for bringing this meeting together, particularly with such an important global reach and such a depth of analysis from the speakers. It's incredible what I've been hearing. As Jenny said, CND is active in the anti-war movement nationally and internationally. We played a central role in the campaign against the war on Iraq in 2003, then against the threat of war on Iran and all other US targets in the so-called war on terror. Now we've seen President Trump step up his dangerous policies. Over the past years and months, he's pulled out of key treaties which for years have controlled and reduced the threat from nuclear weapons and nuclear war. And this is already leading to a new nuclear arms race. We've also seen Trump's national security strategy orientate towards confrontation and conflict with Russia and China. And at the same time as he produced that strategy, he also published 
his new nuclear posture review, where he talked about a new generation of usable nuclear weapons. And these nuclear weapons, these new nuclear weapons have now been produced and deployed. So if you take these policies together of conflict with Russia and China and usable nuclear weapons, then you're looking at really a very dangerous situation. And you may remember that when Trump was campaigning to get into the White House, he asked, well, why can't we use nuclear weapons? We've got them. Um, and of course, we know it's because nuclear war will kill us all and threaten the very future, future of humanity. But I don't trust Trump to have understood that lesson. And I don't trust his finger on the nuclear button. CND opposes the Cold War on China. And we strongly believe that we must work now to prevent a hot war, a fighting war on China. This is the greatest threat to peace and justice in the world today. And I'm proud to say that we work alongside peace campaigns in the United States. It's really good to see our great friend Medea Benjamin here today and alongside all those across the world fighting against war. Together with our partners in Britain, the Stop the War Coalition in particular, we will be putting pressure on our government to change their policy, away from their craven support for Trump's war policies. And stopping the UK aircraft carrier going to the South China Sea will be a start. I'm very pleased to report that this morning at its meeting, CND National Council voted an emergency motion to work in the international peace movement to build worldwide opposition to war on China. That is our pledge. We are all united here to stop war on China and we will all work together to that goal. So thank you to everyone involved today. Let's do everything we can to build this movement, to build it internationally through all forms of organization. And I look forward to the next steps in this initiative together. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for that, uh, Kate, and that inspiring uh, backdrop, a colourful backdrop. Um, so this brings us to the end of the panel contributions. Uh, it's been absolutely fantastic, a truly wide ranging discussion. Um, we've explored uh, the various aspects of the US strategy, the Indo-Pacific, the Five Eyes, uh, the US media, uh, the nuclear and military buildup. Uh, we've discussed um, how close, uh, well, how much uh, things may deteriorate, how rapidly things may deteriorate, and how dangerous the situation is. And we've also gained uh, a multipolar perspective. So uh, the great uh, range, uh, depth, and breadth of analysis um, ha has uh, really uh, provided a very strong basis uh, from which to build forward. Um, so uh, I thank uh, all of the speakers for their insights and contributions, and it just remains for me to wind up uh, and to look ahead. Uh, clearly, we're facing the prospect of a prolonged attack from the US against China, uh, which is likely to dominate the global affairs for years to come. Today's meeting is just the start of what needs to be a concerted international campaign against the new Cold War. International cooperation that is urgently needed can only find a firm basis through international debate and building understanding between peoples. Today, we've made a start to open up new channels of dialogue. Now we must build on this. 
helping us to do so. We have a number of peace organizations which have signed the statement in addition to Code Pink and CND, which have been with us today. Um, from the US, we have the Answer Coalition, the International Action Center, and the newly formed Pivot to Peace. And from Britain, we also have Stop the War. Uh, we hope that we've lit that single spark that will ignite a new movement for international peace. And we now aim to reach out more widely. As we do so, I think we should recall those opening words of the preface on which the UN was founded 75 years ago. Starting, we the peoples of the United Nations, it committed to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind. That world of the United Nations were never allowed to be blocked and divided as it was by the last Cold War. We cannot allow another conflict between major powers, now nuclear armed, to unravel. When the international peace movement mobilized against the Iraq war, we all believed that another world was possible. The stark reality is now that none of our critical common problems can be faced without peace. There's no time to be lost. It's up to us now to bring into being that original conception of the United Nations, of a world based not on the absolute dominance of military power, but on the common security for all. To finish, I'd like to invite everyone watching to sign up to the organizer's statement, a new Cold War against China is against the interests of humanity, which is available on the website nocoldwar.org. Please spread the word and encourage others to sign it individuals and organizations alike. Please look at the website nocoldwar.org for information on future meetings and other initiatives. And please follow the international campaign on Twitter and Facebook to keep up to date and to spread the word. Videos from this meeting will be available soon on the No New Cold War YouTube channel. Um, I'm sure I won't be the only one who'll be watching uh, this again uh, for, for so many valuable points. That concludes the uh, proceedings once again. I'd like to thank all the speakers uh, and the uh, organizers, um, Carlos and Fiona and John. And my thanks, my thanks to all of you who have joined us from all around the world. Thank you.